Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. This week on the show we have a guest, Stuart Lansley. He is a visiting academic at the University of Bristol, where he mostly studies universal basic income. He's the co-editor of a book, It's Basic Income, which is a compilation of essays about the topic of UBI. And he's also written several reports on how it could be implemented in Britain for the political organisation Compass. So we had a wide-ranging discussion about universal basic income, the impacts that it could have on inequality, the uh, possible levels at which it could be set. Now, our discussion is quite focused on the UK and British politics, but I think that a lot of what we're discussing here is really applicable to nations around the world that are currently considering UBI. And uh, he was very generous with his time, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, so Stuart, first of all, thanks very much for coming on the show. And I want to start by talking about your uh, career. You're a visiting fellow at the University of Bristol, and you co-edited an excellent collection of essays, which was called Its Basic Income, on UBI from lots of different perspectives. And you've written reports for Compass, including basic income uh, from desirability to feasibility. Sorry, including basic income from desirability to feasibility. So you've been studying this as a policy option for for quite a long time. So I think we should start with the very basics. Then I mean, the first place is to start with definitions. So what does UBI, universal basic income, mean to you? I see it, uh, the idea as essentially of building in an income floor. Uh, at the moment, um, the, the beverage um, welfare state, the sort of pro-post-war reform to Social Security, always aimed to give everybody a basic income. He used it, he wanted a, a, a number of different measures to create that, full employment, national insurance, uh, national assistance and so on. The problem is that, is that that never really worked and millions of people over the last 30, 40 years have missed out for, for a variety of reasons. And today, we, you know, several million people live on virtually very, very little income at all. So this idea really is to, to fill the holes that were left in the post-war system with a guaranteed minimum income, which everybody is automatically entitled to. Some people call that a universal basic income. Some people call it a basic income. I prefer to see it as an income floor. Okay. And um, many people sort of point to UBI as, as an idea whose time is coming now, uh, maybe, you know, there's some arguments around increased automation, which makes uh, a number of jobs obsolete in the future or may do. Um, that was the case, for example, the 2020 presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, that was a big part of his platform for uh, suggesting it. Um, others think that it might be an interesting part of a, a stimulus package to recover from, say, our current corona recession. I mean, it seems like from what you're saying here that you actually view it in, in a much sort of uh, deeper and longer historical context going back to as you say, the, the post-war uh, social state that was sort of implemented in Britain here. And there were some similar ideas, you know, that were being talked about by the Nixon administration in the 1970s. And arguably, in, at least in from the technological perspective, the concept that one day, you know, machines and the produce of machines could be divided up to allow us to live uh, lives that were more secure and more filled with leisure. That goes back to Keynes or even earlier. So w- would you like to talk for a little bit about the, the history of UBI as an idea and, and what would you view its, its role as um, in, in the specific context that we're living in now? Yes, I mean, the, the idea of a guaranteed income for all is centuries old. I mean, it, it actually goes back to, to ancient Athena. Uh, you know, 500 years BC, there was a debate in the Senate um, at the time about the idea of using a, a silver mine find, which, which, which was worth a lot of money. They debated in the Senate whether it should be used to give everybody a basic income. 
uh, in the end they didn't they they used the money instead for um to, to build a navy um so but every you know every couple of centuries um this idea has been surfacing um and it's, we've had these waves of interest over the over the last century um which which come and go um and we're now in another sort of wave of interest in basic income and there's lots of reasons for that a lot of it's to do with the insecurity of modern economies. A lot is to do with the fact that there have been a number of trials. Um, a lot of it is to do with um, sort of shocks to the system. And some of it is to do with the debate about automation. But there's whatever the reasons, and there's a mix of reasons, we are in um, a, a, a significant wave of interest, not just in the UK. In, in many ways, the UK is behind the international curve on this and other countries are sort of further ahead in the debate but it's it's certainly been you know the, the debate has certainly woken woken up in the last sort of few six to six to six to nine months um and has been given an, another stimulus because of the uncertainty created by COVID-19. And uh, you, you mentioned ancient Athens. I think that's quite interesting because, of course, in, in the Roman Empire, they had a, a grain doll that would go out to every citizen to sort of keep them alive. Um, that was a very popular kind of policy intervention that they had there, at least in, in the city of Rome itself, that was uh, very difficult for them to keep away. And I suppose it's universal basic food was what you'd call that rather than universal basic income. But it's, uh, you know, going back thousands of years, this was something that the state did do for its people on occasion. So let, let's say that I'm, I don't know, Chancellor of the Exchequer or Secretary of the Treasury in the US or someone similar and you wanted to make the case to me for implementing uh, a UBI. Um, this is your sort of elevator pitch for the policy. What what would you say are the advantages of doing this? Well, I, I think I think that, that, that there is there are one of the key reasons is that we in in the UK, not just in the UK, but the UK uh, system of social security is deeply flawed in many ways. It it's meant to provide social protection. Um, and it doesn't do that. We have very, very high late, rates of poverty. Uh, the security, social security system is meant to be an entitlement, but in fact, it's become very, very conditional. In fact, we, you know, we, 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 in the last ten years, five million people who are entitled to social security of various kinds have been sanctioned and not been able to receive it. So, I, I think we. So. Partly it's to do with the flaws in the existing system. Lots and lots of people miss out. Um, and we really do need to have another look at the system and, and, and try and deal with those flaws. And basic income would deal with it. But I think there are lots of other reasons um, for supporting a basic income. Fundamentally, what we're talking about is the rights of citizenship. I mean, do citizens have a right to a basic income to, to a basic minimum living standard. This has been essentially the, the, the fundamental principle that's driven uh, the idea of basic income over hundreds of years. The idea, thinkers and philosophers who've argued for a basic income, you know, tie the idea into the idea that it's a fundamental right of citizenship. Um, and that was th th this idea of, of the right of citizenship was kind of built into the to the liberal reforms before the First World War, when we first introduced a system of national insurance, and it was locked further in to the beverage system. And essentially what we've been doing over the last four decades is to unwind that in system of entitlement and make it 
absolutely condition, conditional. Um, it, it's interesting that, you know, it's only low income groups uh, in Britain uh, that are subject to this conditionality, uh, i.e. That, 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 you know, they have to do something in return for their right. You know, we give millions and millions of pounds in support of various kinds right across the income spectrum. But when we're talking about, you know, the middle class or, 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 or the rich or big business owners, those that help comes unconditionally, no strings attached at all, no strings attached to their commitment to society, uh, their commitment to their duty to their employees, uh, their, their, their duty to the local community. And a basic income is basically saying we have to do away with conditionality only for the poor. We have to say we, 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 what we need is a system that protects everybody, irrespective of their circumstances, as a, it is a basic guaranteed right of citizenship. So that, to me, is the fundamental principle. But there, we can talk through there are lots and lots of other benefits that come once you've established that basic idea. Um, lots and lots of other benefits that come with uh, a basic income scheme. Well, I mean, I, for me, one of the big advantages uh, of a basic income is it creates certainty for people. So um, they know that income is going to come. Uh, and that certainty gives them greater freedom, great more choices about the decisions that they make. If you know you've got a sort of guarantee income coming in, uh, every every week, every month, then you, you you can reconsider the kind of choices you make. You might decide to study a little bit longer. You might decide to set up a small business. Um, you might decide, you know, decide to, to sort of give up work temporarily and, and, and try to retrain. Um, it is also, you know, there there are very as we as we discovered during the COVID yeah, during the cri present crisis, there are millions of people. Uh, who are making a huge contribution to society, uh, often, you know, unpaid volunteers, carers, people, you know, that, that usually, you know, are not, they, they do this in a very hidden way. But th these are typically a groups that, despite the, what they're giving to society, society is not really giving them anything back. So what this does, I think, is build a springboard uh, for a transformational change in the way that individuals make their choices. Um, and so I think it's in many ways, it's a manifesto for greater freedom. And I think that, that although there are lots of in immediate benefits from a basic income scheme, it would cut poverty, it would cut means testing, uh, it would increase the universality of the present system. But these dynamic effects uh, that, that, that affect life choices will have much bigger benefits over time. It's essentially, I mean, one thing that interested me when I read the collection of essays in its basic income, um, and this wasn't really applied in the UK context, but this I believe was actually a trial in India. And the point that was made here is that there, there are lots of people in these conditions where they find themselves in essentially debt slavery, where they owe money to the the uh, sort of head honcho of the, of the village or the, or the town that they're living in. And this leads to a, a set of circumstances that dictates your entire life. You, you, you owe money to this person, you have to work for them, uh, you can't ever get a sort of independent income, and you can't ever really break free of the, of the levels of control that these people have over you. And I think this is, 
this is a, an aspect of society that we had in Britain prior to the liberal reforms as well, where we would have had uh, workhouses and the same person who owns the workhouse, you know, owns all of the property in the slums and they also own the corner shop where you buy everything. And there was this sort of cycle of debt slavery that you had. And although the conditions of a lot of people in the West is probably not quite as bad as as, as debt slavery, the, the, what, what the UBI experiment there in India showed was that actually even with only a few years of unconditional basic income for people, it gave them the freedom to break free of the circumstances that, that their life was trapped in. Um, it gave them the security to take risks and start their own businesses and start their own enterprises and and pay for the things that uh, that they needed in terms of healthcare or, or repairing their homes or whatever. And I think from from this perspective, as something that actually sets people free to do something that not only do they find more fulfilling, but they'd actually be more productive doing. Uh, I think that that is a really good um, case for UBI. I mean, do do you, do you sort of view it as 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 a way of having I guess what you might call a more dynamic economy in terms of people shifting from occupation to occupation, because we talk all the time now about how technology is going to come along and make various different occupations obsolete. And the key is to allow people to retrain and do something else or learn to code or whatever it is that people say. But if, if you don't give people the basic security to make those decisions and make those choices that, yes, I am going to be able to do some training here and, and survive on the UBI for the next few years, then people are going to end up trapped in a situation where they're just, you know, paying their bills with the with the pay packet that comes in at the end of the week, and they won't actually be able to have access to any of that social mobility that that people would like to talk about for them. I mean, I I, I don't really see the fundamental goal of basic of a basic income scheme to improve productivity rates. I mean, it may well have a side effect of improving productivity. I think it's mainly. Uh, mainly about um, it's mainly a, a social idea. It's mainly about improving people's opportunities and choices. It's g- giving them an income base which enables them to become more secure, and that of itself will have important benefits for society. You know, all the evidence from the trials that that have been done, including the, the Indian trial, is that it does have a significant increase in general well-being. People feel happier. They feel more secure. Uh, you know, they're more likely to uh, move away from situations in which they they've been trapped. They might they might refuse to take low paid jobs, and 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 and, and, and set out you know to, to 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 try and find better types of work. To some extent, what it does is it it will raise the uh, the bargaining power of the workforce. I mean, we know that at the, the moment, you know, the sort of bargaining power is, is loaded very much in favour of employers, in favour of boardrooms and big business. Uh, and, 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 you know, workers, particularly working workers with low skills or, or, or at the bottom end of the educational uh, range, um, have very, very limited choices. This will, this will rebalance some of those choices because it will mean... Uh, that 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 people simply don't to, merely to survive. They just don't, they don't have to take, you know, the first job that comes along. It just opens up these opportunities, and that of itself will will have a big rebalancing effect. Now, some of these some of these social advantages and advantages in terms of well being may also turn out to have 
positive impacts on, on productivity, on the economy, on the way the economy runs. But I don't think we should see that as the principal goal. The principal goal really is, is to uh, release everybody um, from you know, the kind of shocks and insecurities that, 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 that we know modern societies are increasingly subject to. Um, and just to give them, you know, the, these opportunities that, that, that to increase the, the levels of choice that they're able to make in society. It's interesting because quite often politically we pose there as being a, a dichotomy between the levels of freedom that people have and the levels of security that they're entitled to. So you see this, for example, in terms of people when they're picking a career, they can pick the secure uh, job that is going to be reliable or they can try and do something that's a little bit more uh, adventurous that might not give them the same level of uh, income security. And of course, in terms of uh, defense and domestic policy and things like that, there's always this trade-off that's seen between freedom and security. But the sort of the role of UBI in this context is to give people security, which then gives them freedom. Yes, and, and it, it, it's possible that, that, that people might be, you know, might be more willing to take risks. Um, they might be more willing to set up a business because they know uh, at least they've got something to fall back on if the business takes a little bit of time to, to get going or, or doesn't work. Or, you know, they might be more likely to go and retrain or, 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 or uh, to, to try and gain new skills. If if that happens, then those are all positive things for, for the economy more widely. So, yes, I think there will be, uh, 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 people will be more willing to take risks and that of itself may have a wider positive benefit um, for the wider economy. So as your report points out, one of the interesting aspects of UBI is that it has support from figures on both the right and left of the political spectrum. We've talked about Richard Nixon, this being a policy proposal during his administration. Uh, we know that, for example, I think in the UK, the Green Party supports a UBI. Um, and similarly, I think it's it's got some interest from the Liberal Democrats as well, who are the centrist party uh, in, in British politics at the moment. So given that the UBI seems to be popular amongst people from all, all different realms of the political spectrum, to what extent do you think that's due to these figures having different definitions of what a UBI actually is and, and what it would be for, and of course, what level it would be set at as well? Yes, I mean, it's certainly true that through history, um, uh, the idea of a basic income for all has, has, has been promoted by figures on the right uh, as much as the left. Um, but 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 these people who come from you know different political views have very different ideas and concepts of what a basic income scheme is. So uh, the, the, the 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 negative income tax scheme that was looked at by uh, President Nixon and she nearly came close to to, to introducing one in the early nineteen seventies was actually the the brainchild of. Um, uh, the pro-market economist Milton Friedman, and now Friedman's ideas, and, and various other co colleagues from, from the pro-market school, uh, saw basic income as a way of uh, reducing uh, the rest, of the, the size of the rest of the state. So they said, right, what we do is we give everybody a minimum income, and then we don't need to. Then people can pay for their own education, they pay for their own health. Uh, we can, you know, we can really cut the level of public spending. So they saw a basic income and the right today still, you know, still see it as a way of substituting for other parts of the welfare state. The left 
um, see it as an addition to the welfare state. So, um, i.e., that 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 it's certainly not not a way of dismantling other parts of of income support or other starts to the welfare. So, you they see it very much as a way as an additional tool in trying to improve the security of society and the welfare of people. So, yes. Um, and this debate hasn't gone away. Uh, of course, there's also within the left as well. There is a big debate um, in Britain and elsewhere. Uh, basic income is a sort of marmite issue uh, on the left. You either love it or you hate it. And you know, there's quite a lot of people on the left who hate it. Um, I sometimes see basic income as an idea a little bit like some of the big reforms of the last hundred years. So if you take the National Health Service uh, or the national minimum wage, for example, uh, those are both ideas that have been campaigned for for 30, 40 years before they were implemented. They were very, very controversial. Um, Now, of course, they are so popular that no government would would dare to touch them in principle. Um, And basic income feels to me a little bit like that. Um, it, 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 it's an idea that I think is going to happen. And when it finally does happen, it will become a little bit like the National Health Service, a little bit like the national minimum wage. It will become fundamentally, uh, you know, it, it will be incredibly popular amongst people and no government would ever be able to to to, to play with it. Um, so historically, I think we're probably... Uh, you know, we're 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 about it nine, about it in the mid nineteen thirties in relation to the National Health Service. We're probably in the sort of mid nineteen nineties in relation to the national minimum wage. So my guess is that some model of, of the basic income will come in over the next, probably towards the end of the, the next decade. Hearing that we're in the mid nineteen thirties is not all that reassuring, given what happened in the nineteen thirties. But um. But I mean, well, on, on, on that topic, then, this was something I was going to ask a bit later, but I'll ask it now. Um, do, you, do you think that in light of the coronavirus pandemic, which everyone has said has obviously caused this huge economic shock to society and to the socio-political ruling order in a lot of different countries and has raised questions about um, the, the social contract between citizens and governments and all sorts of things like this, um, do you think that that has accelerated the introduction of a UBI? I mean, we've seen, for example, in America, they've they've done a sort of a, a one-off helicopter drop in in the Friedman style to people uh, of, of twelve hundred dollars, which is something that, again, you might not have imagined happening prior to coronavirus, but is close to a sort of one-off uh, version of a UBI stimulus payment. Do you think that the the cause of the UBI has actually been accelerated by uh, COVID nineteen and the economic fallout from that? Oh, it absolutely has. I mean it, it, that. Uh... I mean, I've been campaigning around basic in- income for, for, for several years. And uh, until COVID-19, uh, I, I would say there was no more than the handful of uh, MPs in the British Parliament uh, that were in favour of basic income. Uh, since the start of COVID-19, uh, there's been a huge increase in the number of parliamentarians uh, who are calling for a recovery of basic income. Um, there is a, a working party of peers uh, and uh, MPs, uh, which is which was set up a few months ago, which is looking at uh, a basic income. 
uh, and that's across party. There, there are no conservatives on it, but every other party is representative. Is represented. Um, you know, there, there was a group of 150 MPs and peers uh, signed a petition calling for a recovery basic income. Uh, the Department of Work and Pensions Select Committee uh, of the House of Commons is uh, examining uh, the case for basic income. So, you know, it's it, it's it's certainly got political legs, um, and it's because of that it's not going to go away. And of course, one of the reasons why um, is if we'd had a basic income system in place in February uh, when this crisis first emerged we'd have had an automatic economic tool which could have raised the level of demand in the economy because we could have simply increased uh, the rate of basic income. What the government has been doing in order to try and keep the economy alive is come up with a, with a, a number of different schemes, the furlough scheme uh, that sort of changes to universal credit and so on. This would have given us one instrument that could have done it all automatically, quickly, without any great, huge administrative cost. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I think, you know, this, there has been this sort of huge increase in interest amongst parliamentarians, because they suddenly see, here's an instrument that not only has these long-term social benefits, uh, but they're also a very, very important instrument for helping with, with these big shocks to the economy. And it's a, it's a it's a sort of dynamic response. I mean, it's interesting. I've been talking to a few people about the the COVID nineteen recovery, in particular with respect to climate change, which is my sort of main area of specialty. And the interesting thing is that we have these systems like the furlough scheme at the moment, which are preserving the jobs that exist in amber to a certain extent. And there's actually a question about whether, when you have this sort of economic disruption, it makes sense to try and preserve all of the jobs that currently exist, or whether it's actually more pragmatic to accept that some of them are going to go and some of them will be uh, unsustainable. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of the US shale industry, which was uh, never making money and is now starting to collapse. And actually, if you had something like a UBI, it gives people that safety blanket to say, okay, well, I'm not going to get my job back in the shale industry, but I can, you know, retrain and look to start a different career. So it's sort of, it's... uh, not necessarily again it's sort of this productivity argument i suppose but it's it's increasing the resilience uh, and the malleability of the economy when it's faced with a shock like this um if people have something to fall back on uh, rather than just sort of having to uh, take whatever job is on offer for them yes i mean exactly that um it's a way of at the moment the problem with the economy is as much a supply side one um, as a demand side one. Um, but once we get, you know, once people start going back to work, you will have solved the supply side problem. You know, once a factory start reopening, the shops start opening, which of course has been happening. So the supply side problem is slowly being solved. But what's not being solved is the demand demand problem. We still have uh, the, the, a, a, a huge collapse in demand because, on you know, the best estimate is that national you know, the total level of income has fallen by about a fifth over the last um, uh, three or four months. Um, now, some of that income will be revived as people go back to work, although of course the, the furlough has been keeping that going. But unless we fill that hole. Um, 
the economy is going to stay, uh, remain very, very weak with high levels of unemployment. And so, you know, the chance that you know, there's going to be a sort of, there's going to be a, a crisis uh, you know, package this, this week um, is look at, you know, various options being talked about, you know, cutting, for, for try and stimulate demand. Um, well, here, here again, you see, basic income would, 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 be, would be the answer or a key part of the answer. Um, you could do it by, simply by child benefit. I mean, we do have uh, child benefit is effectively a basic income for children. It goes it, it goes to every child. It's guaranteed, um, and it's only clawed back from people you know above the, the, the it, it, over the the higher rate of tax. So you could simply increase child benefit. Um, child benefit goes to uh, I think it's it's something like seven million families, eleven million children. Um, you could simply raise child benefit by twenty pound a week for three months. That would immediately have a huge impact on the economy. It would be extremely simple to administer. You wouldn't have any. You wouldn't have a sort of need for a new bureaucracy to to do it. Um, and yet the government. We, you know, I've been part of you know uh, a big campaign to try and lobby the government to try and increase child benefit as a way. Uh, partly as a matter of you know, protecting families um, from fault and income, but also as a way of trying to get the recovery going more quickly. So far, they haven't done that. So, I mean, there's a possibility they may do that. Um, but we do have already have part, you know, a sort of partial basic income scheme in operation for children, uh, which could be deployed in the in the, in the present situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's interesting. So, I mean, so the, the, I want to come on then to some of the, the more classic objections to UBI that are constantly raised. Um, I know there's a great deal of scholarship that answers these questions, but I'd like your perspective and opinion, and it wouldn't really be a complete interview if I didn't ask about some of these issues. So I will raise them in the order that my dad put to me when I first mentioned that I'd be doing this interview on UBI. Um so uh, I, I won't quite imitate his voice, but you'll get this per- perception that this is the sort of uh, counter arguments that people make. So the first one is, how can we afford to pay for a UBI? Well, um, the, the model of UBI, the, 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 I mean, the, 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 how expensive it, co- it is depends entirely on the level that's paid. And what we're advocating, or um, the work that I've done, is advocating what we call a, a modest basic income. I got quite a low starting point, which would be forty pound for a child, which is roughly the double the current rate of child benefit, and sixty pound for an adult um, uh, per week. That's per week. Uh, that, that's the equivalent of ten thousand four hundred for a family of four a year. Now, that, that, that's not enough to live on, but Given that it's guaranteed, um, it's a very, very substantial income floor uh, uh, below which nobody would fall as a starting point, and we would raise that over time. Now, with a few tax adjustments, uh, we believe that scheme um, would have no net revenue costs at all. You could implement it overnight with just some small tax changes. Um, uh, If you want to go for a, a more generous scheme, then there would be tax implications. You would have to raise more revenue, but um, we we believe that that that, that, that the, the any initial costs of setting up a scheme uh, would be more than returned over time with these these dynamic effects. The dynamic effects 
in terms of better well-being, better health outcomes, uh, a, a happier society, all these things, plus potentially economic gains as well. Uh, through people making better choices about work and so on, uh, and higher levels of training, um, and and more small businesses being created, uh, would increase the size of the economy and therefore help to pay for it in the short term. So, um, but also, you know, I think that 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 that, that we need to that what we, what Britain has is one of the least generous uh, income support systems amongst rich nations. I mean, our levels of benefit, some levels of benefit, particularly the equivalent of unemployment benefit, is lower as a proportion of earnings than it was in 1948. I mean, it's, 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 and uh, we, some of our benefit levels are uh, you know, between a half and two thirds of what they are in other European uh, nations. Uh, so, we have to fill in, you know, there's a big debate now, irrespective of basic income, about the need to redesign and rebuild our social security system, which is just simply not up to the task of uh, complex modern economies. Um, so we're going to need to spend that money anyway, if we're going to, to, to create a much more effective safety net, if you like. Uh, and that money, in my view, would be better spent creating a basic income than tinkering with the existing social security system. Uh, so I think that's a little, you know, I, I don't think the cost argument is sustainable, uh, that it's too, it would be far too expensive and we can't afford it. Um, it I think we're gonna, if we're gonna build a fairer society and a more resilient society, we're gonna have to spend some money anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, okay. And uh, I think, so the next question was gonna be about what the level of UBI uh, that you would want to be set up because obviously this is this is part I think of the distinction between people on the right and people on the left who who want to talk about this um, and obviously the the level at which you set the UBI uh, makes quite a big difference if in 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 your case it's a it's a fairly modest benefit to begin with is the ultimate aim to increase it to subsistence level or um, you know, how do you define subsistence and how do you define the ideal level of the UBI? Or is it, in fact, something that is constantly being varied in response to the to the policy landscape at the time? Well, I, th I think there are, there, are, there are two broad approaches to, to uh, basic income. The, the first is what you, what you might call the big bang approach, which would sweep away the existing social security system, would pay... Uh, basic income levels at levels that are enough to live on, i.e. probably above subsistence, triple the kind of rates I've been talking about. And the main advocates of the Big big Bang scheme come to it from, from the argument that it's a sort of post-capitalist, post-work, utopian world that they want to create. And they see that, you know, a basic income at very, very generous levels as a critical element of this transition to a sort of post-capitalist society. Uh, when people, you know, won't have to work anymore. Um, uh, I personally am not, you know, I'm not in, in favour of, of that approach. Um, uh, I think, you know, we, maintain, we need to maintain the work ethic. I think work is still an important source of, of um, enjoyment and pleasure for people. And uh, what we should be doing is creating a floor that is, a, that, that is way below a sort of big bang level. Uh, that maintains the work ethic, but but does have this great expansion of choices open to people. 
Um, so that's why, and we believe also that it's important to to, 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 to introduce a basic in income over time uh, because we know when we've attempted to reform the social security system using these kind of big big schemes like um, tax credit and universal credit have been very complicated and they cause all sorts of problems and upheaval and so our, what we want to do is just introduce you know a very very simple reform which would be pretty straightforward and wouldn't interfere with the, the, the rest of the system and we'd simply create this income floor underneath the existing system and then we gradually raise it over time um, probably and we'd start as I say with 40 pound for a child 60 pound for an adult we probably raise you know double that over, over say um, a decade or two decades um, as resources become available so it, 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 it's, 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 it's a sort of incremental, gradualist approach to the introduction of basic income. Uh, now, not everybody who's in favour of basic income agrees with this approach. I mean, there, as I say, there, 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 is, there is a big debate amongst the basic income community about, whether, about what the level should be and whether we should be going for something more like Big Bang or something that's more modest. And that debate yet to be resolved. Um, but we, 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 you know, I, I mean, I've been accused by some critics of thinking small rather than thinking big. Well, I think probably we need to think small uh, to get the kind of big changes that we need rather than a sort of flash bang. Let's let's get rid of everything and approach, which might cause rather a lot of chaos in the process. So I think it's interesting. I mean, there's a couple of questions that I had here that I think the fact that you're advocating for a more modest basic income does really answer those. Um, the first of which is the argument that it would stifle innovation because people would just slack off um, or they would all, there would be a surplus of people who are called to be artists or songwriters and not enough who are called to you know clean the drains or whatever. And of course, then there's also a concern about uh, macroeconomic impacts such as inflation. But if, if what you're doing is effectively not changing the the government's balance sheet that much then i suppose you don't need to worry about that to the same extent but um i suppose on 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 the first point then if we did eventually get to a society where um the basic income was set high enough that people could live off it i mean do you think there's any validity to the concern that people would be uh that the sort of um capitalist darwinian approach to uh, competitiveness and so on that 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 drives a lot of uh, innovation and economic activity would would go away, or do you think that's a sort of naive approach to these things? Well, I mean, I I, th I think I don't think we I don't think we should be I don't think we should use basic income as as a way of imposing a sort of model of the economy from top down. Um, I you know so so. For example, you know that the, um, the Big Bang School see it as a way of creating a post-work society. I think that's for people to decide. So that's why we prefer a scheme uh, that would 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 it wouldn't take away the incentive to innovate to work, um, but but it would give people more choices. And if the, the people's choices are to are, are to Trans, transit towards a different sort of society, so be it. Um, so changes will follow. Um, so I, I, I see it very much as a sort of, it's a way of uh, 
expanding democratic choices, a way of bottom-up change to society that is people-based rather than government-based or academic-based or big thinkers-based. And technology, um, the technological change process, which is going to happen quite independently of whether we have a basic income or not, um, is one of one of the you know one, one of the issues that will run in parallel to, to what's happening. But what basic income will do, um, I think, is provide a degree of protection from the inevitable upheaval of the tech, you know of the of the revolution that that's already started and already and will will continue. And I think that's going to be another reason. It's another reason, but it's not the only reason. Uh, why basic income will, will become, you know, more heavily debated, uh, but it's it will help to stimulate the debate, and it could be seen by many, and it's already been seen by many as the answer uh, to the risks uh, associated with, with with you know a, a very big set of technological upheavals, the robotic revolution, and so on. Um, so I see these things going kind of in parallel. I see basic income as a way of way of building security uh, into society giving people more choice um and that will help us trans trans you know move towards a kind of society that is more people based they will be deciding whether they work longer hours or work less hours or are happy to 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 earn a little bit less in order to you know spend more time doing music or art or gardening or whatever so i see it as a way of actually building um uh, you know, much, much more secure, well-being-based societies, um, not as a way of, of a big economic explosion, you know, or managing, managing a transition to, a, to a, you know, a non-capitalist society. I don't see it like that. If we move towards a non-capitalist society, then that will be by choice rather than by, by diktat. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's an interesting perspective that I haven't seen advanced quite so often. So, I'm, I'm thank you for for discussing that. I mean, we've talked about technological uh, change. UBI is quite popular among Silicon Valley types, and I think that kind of makes me wonder sometimes because I think that a lot of them view their job as being inventing technologies that make broad swaths of people redundant. And then the reason that you're supporting a UBI is to prevent there from being a, a revolution against Silicon Valley in much the same way that you had, you know, Roman aristocrats supporting the grain dole in Rome, which would prevent the plebs from getting too uh, willing to rise up and depose them. And that actually allowed them to maintain a very unequal society for longer than they might have done otherwise. So, I mean, if, if this if this were to be the case and in, in the support for some of these billionaires for UBI, do you see a, a risk that we could end up with a two-tiered society between the minority that own the uh, the digital means of production, I guess you could say, and, and and then the vast majority of people who are mostly dependent on a subsistence UBI or a slightly below subsistence UBI plus whatever gig work they can get from from the economy that's that's there afterwards. Well, we all, we already have that. I mean, we, we, already, <laughs> yeah. we already have a society uh, in, in which you know large sections of the workforce. Um, are dependent on you know uh, very poor and insecure jobs um, in order to you know enrich enrich the few. Um, so I mean there is there is I mean the, 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 yes I mean I, 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 I'm, it's interesting that that that, that uh, you know, part part of the uh, call for basic income is is coming from 
Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurs and, 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 you know, the, the sort of billionaire, you know, the billionaire technological class in the United States. Um, and, you know, they're doing it, as, as you say, in part as a, a system of protection because, you know, they, 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 they don't want to be overturned by an impoverished um, society. So they, they see this, this as a way of to, to try and um, to weaken the, the, the risks of, of, of a jobless, jobless technological revolution, if that's what comes about. If that happens, it's basic income isn't enough on its own. You know, we will need lots of other measures. This is where the left and the right, of course, you know, this, this, this dichotomy between the left and the right come in. The left see basic income as part of a series of measures that are needed um, to transform society and make it less unequal and, and spread opportunities. The right see it as a one-off change and therefore they can back off. And I think that most Silicon Valley uh, supporters are in the sort of right of centre, pro-market, you know, minimal welfare state camp. They, they come at it from, from that point of view. Um, but not all of them. I mean, some of, some of them some, some of them don't. But uh, uh, So we, we have to be a little bit wary of, of their vision, if you like, um, and the consequence of it. So, I mean, speaking on this subject of inequality then in a more unequal society, one concern surrounding the difference between a UBI and means-tested benefits, where, you know, we go through and give benefits to people who are most in need of them financially, um, however harsh the means testing can be, is that wh- when you have a UBI, you will always end up with a UBI giving some money to those that don't need it. Bill Gates will get a UBI, etc. So in other words, unless it's carefully tailored, it might end up being more regressive than progressive systems where the taxes of the wealthy are redistributed. Now, I know that some of the modelling that you've done in your reports actually tackles this question as it would shake out in the real economy. So what, what do you find from that in terms of the UBI's impacts on I- inequality? Uh, yes, well, well the, 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 our basic income model, um, uh, which uh, would introduce this income floor, uh, would come with a, a series of tax changes, uh, which would claw back uh, the gains from essentially the, the top third of income earners. So what you, you basically have a profile, if you're looking at winners and losers from our scheme, um, the, 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 the poorest third are big winners. Their incomes rise quite a lot. The middle third uh, are about, stay about neutral, and the top third um, are losers. Uh, n- not heavy losers, but a bit. So, so the gain the gain of all this is concentrated um, uh, amongst the poorest groups, and therefore it reduces inequality. Um, and over time, I think you know. The, so, so it it it, it, it introduces a, a one off reduction in the current income gap between the you know the the top and the bottom um uh, so but you i think we, we need to understand this concept of universalism because it's it's um the beverage reforms after the war uh, what was particularly significant and revolutionary about the beverage reforms uh, was this was this idea of universalism that i.e everybody would be entitled Everybody would be entitled to free health. Everybody would be entitled to national insurance benefits. Yeah, billionaires um, can use the NHS if yes, they want to. If yes, they so, to. But, but before then, you know, the 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 the, the, the piecemeal uh, the, uh, the, uh, system of, of social security that existed before the war was entirely means-tested, and the means-tested was universally hated. 
because it, re it requires huge interference into people's lives um, and you, you had a sort of, you know, coercive state administering it. And, you know, the people loved beverage because they saw this as an end to the, the means test. Um, and what's happened is that universal elements of the wealth, post-war welfare state have been eroded over the last 50, 50 60 years. And the means-tested selective uh, elements have expanded hugely. And so we've ended up with a little bit like the pre-war system, only more generous, a more generous pre-war system, um, but still with all this, the elements of the sort of coer coercive disciplinary state that decides whether you're entitled to it or not. Um, and so what a basic income would do would, 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 would take us a back towards the, to, to, to the beverage sort of vision of a more universal system and, and less reliance on means testing. And as the income floor that, that we're we talking about uh, rises over time, then the level of means testing would, would also fall quite significantly. So I think if, you, if you're looking at this reform in a slightly medium term perspective over the next two, two or three decades, rather than the immediate impact, I think it, it, it's a sort of scheme I think beverage would recognise and support uh, 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 um, and would move us away from this this emphasis on coercion. I mean, it's only interesting that the, the government um, has, um, during, during the lockdown period, when the, the local job centres have been closed, the government has suspended the sanction system. Uh, and there's been, you know, quite a lot of debate as to whether they would uh, restore it or not. Well, they have. So the job centres are opening again this week, and um, uh, and um, condition the sanction system is being reimposed. But this time, of course, you know, before lockdown, we had roughly one million people, or, or I can't know the exact number. It's something like one to one and a half million people um, were on the books. Now it's nearly triple that. So we should very briefly explain, sorry, for listeners outside of the UK, uh, where there are a few, that we actually have a, a, a job centres and the benefit system, the unemployment benefit that you can get in the UK. Um, it can be stopped or taken away from you if you miss a certain number of meetings or if you don't apply for a certain number of jobs over a certain period of time. That's what we're talking about when we talk about sanctions. Yes, I mean, it, that's right. That's, I think I said earlier that, 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 that five million sanctions have been issued over the last eight years. And that means you have no income at all. So if, if your job seeker's allowance is your so, sole source of, of income, then you have it taken away. And that can be taken away from six weeks or more. And these, it's taken away for often very, what most people will see as relatively minimal failures, i.e. You know, you're late for an interview or you don't turn up for an interview. And often you don't turn up to an interview because your child is ill or you've had a crisis at home or something. Um, so it's a, a particularly vindictive system. Um, and one of the thing about a basic income is it would immediately take away sanctions you, because it would be, be an absolutely basic right. Um, it wouldn't come with those conditions. So you, you, you could dismantle the whole DWP mechanism for managing the sanction and conditionality process. This, of course, is there's an element of controversy about this, this concept. Um, but as I, I, you know, the, the, I think we need to look at this idea of conditionality right across the whole of society, uh, this sense of that rights come with duties that uh, needs to be rethought, not just in terms of the current social security system, but, but, but the, the balance of rights and duties 
for, for everybody. And I, I think what COVID-19 has illustrated is that there are, there are these millions of people in Britain who are giving a lot to society, you know, whether they be low paid workers working as carers or, you know, working uh, in transport or, or working as delivery drivers who are very much of the low paid, insecure end of the job market. And then, then there's a huge army of volunteers, most of whom are unpaid at all, um, uh, who, who fulfill the, the duties of citizenship, but don't get many, get, get very weak rights in the process. Where, whereas if we look at, you know, the richer end of society, you know, entrepreneurs, financiers, bankers, uh, the, the well-paid middle classes, you know, the, who, who get very well rewarded, but, 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 but are not asked to fulfill any duties to society. So I think it's time, you know, that this seems to me that the reintroduction of sanctions that's taking place this week is a huge opportunity for us as a society to, to re rethink this whole concept of, uh, of reciprocity, as it's known, as the reciprocity system that was introduced after the war, um, that then applied pretty well across society. So you had big business kind of signed up to it in this kind of social contract that they signed, they signed up to the, to, to the post-war reforms and they, they, you know, accepted that they had social responsibilities as well, that we really need a new social contract that looks at this question of social to duties and, and rights right across the system, uh, that, 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 that increases the rights at the bottom and increases the duties at the top. Um, as part and, and the basic income scheme would be one of the ways I think of of creating this kind of social contract that applies right across the. So this is a sort of slightly tangential question, but um, there's a book by Walter Scheidel, The Great Leveller, uh, which came out a few years ago, where he talks about how in societies you tend to have a consistently rising rate of inequality, wealth inequality, income inequality within societies in ordinary times. And then crises come along and either the, the nature of the crisis, which is somewhat redistributive in terms of, uh, for example, if there's an earthquake, it will destroy a mansion as well as a slum. But the person who's lost the mansion has lost more wealth, wealth rather. Um, but also the governmental responses to crises, such as we saw in, in the mass mobilization warfare in the Second World War. And then subsequently, you know, the very high rate of top level taxation, which followed from that. Um, it, it's only the crises that actually reverse this inexorably increasing uh, income inequality in society. That was the sort of thesis of this book. So, I mean, do you think that in, in light of COVID-19, part of the motivation for introducing a UBI is actually that is the policy intervention that is going to cut this income inequality and wealth inequality that otherwise has been increasing for decades and, you know, will spiral out of control if, uh, if nothing is done? It's not a silver bullet. It doesn't solve the complete problem of inequality. I mean, it doesn't do anything about the concentration of wealth. It doesn't do anything about, you know, the, the institutionalized sources of inequality through, through business behavior and, and inheritance and, uh, and so on. So if, if, if the job is to make a huge change in inequality, we need other policies, uh, changes alongside. This again is the difference between the left and the right. You know, the right, you know, don't want to change these institutional uh, sources of inequality and, and, and the left too. But I, I think it's interesting that, that um, the book you've you, you just been talking about is, I mean, you know, argue, talked about four main sources of, of 
reductions in inequality. And the two, the two main ones were war and pandemics. Uh, and it's certainly the case that the, certainly the Second World War uh, was a, a, an amazing equaliser. And we, we came out of the war a much more equal society than we did when we went into it. Everybody thought that the big economic shock in 2008, the 2008 crisis, uh, would be another source of of fundamental uh, progressive change that you know that we completely it, 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 we we completely have a huge shake up and be able to produce a more progressive and equal society. And of course, that that didn't that didn't happen. So there is a big debate now, I think, as to whether COVID and this current crisis is 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 going to is going to be the mechanism, one of the horsemen, if you like, the, the pandemic that finally shakes us out of. Uh, of this locked-in, unequal system. Who knows? I mean, I think you know what the, the Build Back Better movement. I mean, there is there is a, obviously a huge shake-up going on in terms of ideas and debates, and 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 uh, there is this sort of desire across society that that we will build back better. Um, and I think a basic income would be a hugely important uh, element of 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 a progressive attack on inequality. But it certainly would be only one instrument on on its own. Although it would be it'd lead to a much better society on its own, um, it wouldn't really do enough to to tackle. It would raise the floor at the bottom. It wouldn't do much about the top. Not not that you know these huge wealth and income concentrations at the top. Uh, it, it wouldn't really tackle those. We need a very very different set of instruments if we're going, if we're going to deal with that. So part of what. The, your book, It's Basic Income, this book of essays that, that you co-edited uh, does, is collect some of the evidence that has taken place for controlled trials of UBI, uh, where individual groups of people have been given a universal basic income, uh, unconditional basic income for a number of weeks, and their behaviours, I guess, have been observed, and the effects of it have been observed to see what sort of social impact that it has. Um, we've already discussed one of the essays in particular, pointing out that UBI uh, not only temporarily but actually permanently released people from these debt traps in these uh, villages in India um, and that was a fascinating point for me which illustrates the point that a lot of people uh, would make about a UBI is that you yourself know what the best thing is to spend money on uh, as opposed to a sort of top-down attempt by the state to find what the best thing is for you to uh, spend money on or you know them giving you things that you don't necessarily need. Um, so, so there's several different trials that are explored in this book. Could you talk about the, the concept of, of universal basic income trials in general and what we've learned from them and whether there are any particular examples that really stuck out to you as illustrating that, uh, yes, this policy would work to do uh, to have a certain result? Well, there, there have been a lot of trials. Um, uh, it's probably been about um, 15 trials uh, over the last three or four decades in the United States, in Canada, uh, I mean, several in Europe, I mean, several in, in developing uh, developing uh, economies. Um, and the, the most recent trial is the one that was held in Finland, which ended it ended about two, two years ago. It was, uh, the thing about all these trials um, is then none of them have been, you know, pure trials of a basic income. I, they're not, they, they, they tend to be select groups, um, or, or, or they t- tend to be testing particular uh, examples of the impact on social policy. So let's take the Finland scheme, which, which um, uh, they, they, it's, it was a two-year scheme um, 
it went to it, it, they enrolled two thousand uh, unemployed individuals, and they gave them uh, they took them out of the social security system, gave them a basic income instead of unemployment benefit, um, and uh, made it clear that if if they got a job, they would keep. Uh, the basic income and wouldn't lose it. To, 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 what they were really interested in was was um, whether it would increase the incentive to work. Uh, um, and th that trial is over, and the, the, the final report of the evidence about the impact has shown two main things. Uh, the first is that there was a spike in well-being. Uh, that group were were much happier. Uh, and and you know, more more reassured and less less depressed um, as a result uh, of the basic income scheme. Uh, the effect on work was uh, rather marginal. There was wasn't much evidence that it encouraged. People. It did a little bit, um, but it was. So I, I think that the main lesson we can draw from these multiple trials, and some of them in developed economies some of them in poorer economies and you can't really compare you know the effect in india with the, with the effect in the uk united states or whatever but the, the, i think there are two broad lessons the first is that they seem to all the trials have had a positive impact upon health and education so in poorer countries there's been a huge increase in health people much less stressed uh, and there's been a remarkable increase in children going to school and staying on in school um but the the, the, the the evidence is also that it doesn't under if it it doesn't have a huge positive impact on on the incentive to work but it also doesn't undermine it so one of the fears of the anti-bi school that it would it would greatly reduce the incentive to work doesn't the evidence doesn't really support that um i think i don't i'm not part of the school who believes that we need a trial. Uh, I think, you know, we can learn trials uh, take a long time. They only give, they, they can never be a perfect basic income scheme. I think we know enough about basic income now that we could actually start implementing a scheme, if you like, incrementally. So we could, for example, raise child benefit and, um, and introduce a scheme for young people. I think we should introduce a scheme, basic income scheme for 18 to 25 year olds, for example. Um, uh, and we could do that and, and and we could certainly test the impact of it, but it wouldn't be a trial. Um, so I, I think we've moved beyond the stage where we need a trial. I can see trials are very useful because they raise the level of debate and they raise people consciousness of the idea and so on. Um, and it may be we still need a trial in order to, but I mean, we didn't trial the minimum wage, introduction of the national minimum wage, did we? I mean, we didn't introduce, we didn't trial the national health system. Um, uh, so uh, I, I slightly fear that, you know, this, the campaign for trials is, is kind of a way of, you know, it's a bit like setting up royal commissions. It's <laughs> slightly a way. <laughs> it's prevarication. Uh, uh, so, um, but I think that, that, that I think the evidence we have is 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 pretty positive about the various schemes that have been looked at, um, and I you know, I think we can draw you know some positive lessons from from those. 
And there's always going to be the objection that you sort of raise with trials that you can't extrapolate the behaviour of a whole society from a trial of a small group. And the people know that they're in the trial, which has a certain impact on how they'll behave. They know that they're being sort of monitored for the future of this idea. And also that, of course, you're, if you are only applying it to a small group, you don't have the sort of interaction impacts when, when it's deployed for the whole society. So there's there's always going to be a limit to to what you can learn from any trial that isn't on the scale of actually implementing the whole policy in the first place. Um yeah, so so just as a sort of final question, then I want to ask what what does the landscape for UBI look like now? Then we've talked about it a little bit in the in the post COVID world, but are there are there uh, proposals advancing through different legislatures? You've said that you think it's inevitable that it will be implemented. Um, how do you see that happening? Well, I mean, I think that, I mean the last six months have already seen a, a big surge uh, in interest. Um, uh, that interest has is moved beyond uh, sort of academics, think tanks and pressure groups, um, where it's been a, it's a rather marginal debate to, to mainstream debate. Um, in the last few months, you've had, you know, the Financial Times uh, in an editorial has called, for, you know, a, a national debate about a recovery, basic income. Um, there's been, you know, a, a lot of, lot more interest in, in amongst parliamentarians, both amongst peers and, and against, amongst MPs. Um, so I, I, I I think we need to build on that debate. Um, and what's around the country now, um, there are a lot of basic income hubs. These are local group pressure groups that are, that are set up. Um, you know, you, you, the, the, you've got such group, there's several in Scotland, there's ones in Sheffield, there's one, there's, there's one in Liverpool, uh, and so on. Um, and what we really need to do is get this debate into the main mainstream. You know, we need a national debate um, I don't think you can go for a reform that is that is that is, that is so, quite so fundamental as this until until unless you're bringing people with you and and people are, are demanding it. Um, so I think the next stage, the next two or three years, is is and what Compass, which is the organisation I've been doing most of the work for, um, is now engaged in in attempting to sort of um, stimulate this national debate. Through helping to create create some of these hubs and, and trying to get a national dialogue, a national conversation going, um, and I think that's that is the next step um, to get everybody talking about it. To, to, you know, to get television making television programs about it, and radio to, to carry more programs. Let, 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 you know, let's have a debate. You know, debates on the mainstream media and so on. Um, and uh, the, 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 I, I think that. If you look at the sort of history of the debate about, I mean, the, about BI, it, it, it is, it's a marathon. I mean, it has been a marathon, um, and um, I kind of, I kind of feel that we are on the last, you know, last few laps. Now, whether you know whether whether the marathon, you know, BI man collapses before before they get to the end, or, or whether they they suddenly, you know, they get past. The end is is is. I think we're more likely now to get to the finishing touch than we were a year ago, and a lot more than we were five years ago. So we're moving in the right direction. Uh, I don't think this is debate is going to go away because all the, the things that have triggered it, like uncertainty, shocks, uh, the, the inadequacies of the present system, are still going to be there. Um, so um, let's see. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in, in, in these big, big issues, but I, I'm feeling, I, I, I just feel that this, that, that, that we're more likely to end up with a scheme 
now than, 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 than we were even a few months ago. And finally, we've talked about uh, advancing this debate. We've mentioned uh, the book of essays you edited, It's Basic Income and Compass, where there's lots of uh, more in-depth reports um, on, on UBI. Is there anything else that you think people should read that people should be aware of or get involved with if they want to find out more? Well, I think if they go, if they go onto the Compass website, um, you know, they'll see uh, details of these various reports and other reports and also the hub. If they go on and see that it's the basic income conversation, uh, they will uh, be able to sign up to, to local groups uh, and get more information there. That's a, that's as good a starting point as any. I mean, uh, there's there's lots going on. It depends where you live, but if you, you know if you happen to to live in Sheffield or or Liverpool, you you could you could search for the the local local hubs there if you want more information or you want to join in uh, or contribute to the debate. Um, uh, so yeah, starting point probably Compass, um, but there's more. There's you know there's, there's a lot more pointers on the Compass website as to where to go um, in terms of reading about it and in terms of just sort of helping with the campaign um, if, if you're if you're persuaded <laughs> of its uh, merits. Stuart, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and uh, telling us all about basic income. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. You can find Stuart Lansley's work over at Compass and his page on the University of Bristol as well. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a really important thing, I think, that we all get involved in this conversation because if, as, as Stuart suggests and as many other people suggest, UBI is going to be the policy tool of the future, then we want to make sure that when it's implemented, it's implemented in a way that genuinely does benefit everyone and doesn't become a sort of excuse to uh, drive through things that don't actually help the vast majority of people. Uh, in any given nation. Now, of course, if you have comments, questions, concerns about the show and uh, what topics you'd like to see us cover, people you'd like to see us interview, uh, things you'd like to hear us talk about in the future, then the place to go is physicspodcast.com. There you'll find the contact form. I respond to everyone's email and I try and do so on a prompt fashion. So if you have any comments, questions or concerns, that's the place to go. There you'll also find we've got a new thing up there at the moment, which is the about page. So I know that when you first subscribe to a podcast, it may can be quite daunting because there's so many episodes to go through. The About page actually summarises all of the different episodes that we've released in the past. And I think if you were going to do that thing we always ask you to do, and tell as many people as possible to listen to the show, to listen to it, then that would be a really great way of doing it. You can send them to this page, you can say, just click on what you're interested in. Because not everyone is going to be interested in every individual topic that we're going to talk about, and that's fine. But uh, it will give people an opportunity to see the full range of stuff that we've covered over the years. And uh, maybe, you know, if you're a new listener, you might want to look there yourself and, and see if we've covered anything in the past that's of interest to you. Of course, the other things you can do on the website while you're there, physicspodcast.com, there are PayPal links, Patreon links for you to financially support the show. And you'll also find links to our social media. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. Plenty of different ways to engage with the show. But of course, the best thing you can always do is tell more people to listen if you've enjoyed it. Until next time, then, please take care.